Well, again, I say welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting, it is wonderful uh, that you are here with us. And what I would like um, for you to do right now as we come in to these times of, of the sermon, sometimes we think that this is just knowledge, that we're just getting new information and learning about what the Bible says. But actually, what this time is, is it's about worship. It's about worshiping God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you to not just look at this as information, but look at this as a way to delight and worship in your God. So if you have your Bibles, we will be in John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. This is a third in a four-part series um, called Who Am I? And today, what we're going to be looking at is this idea of Jesus Christ as the child maker. Jesus Christ as the child maker. Now, I have a question to begin with. What is your view of the gospel, of the good news? Is it a clean slate with God? Is it... Something where you ponder and say, well, I don't have to go to hell. Is it that, oh, I get the righteousness of Christ. That's good. And then you have you ever wondered in your own mind and heart what happens if after you've been redeemed, if you mess up really bad and you sin really bad, what happens? Do you say, well, I'm seen by God in Jesus, so that's all good. Um... That's a lot, but I want you to know that that is not all there is to the gospel. What is your view of yourself? Who are you? Are you saved to be a servant? Are you saved to be a child or both? If you do see yourself as a child of God, then how does that affect you tomorrow morning when you get up and go to work or take care of the kids? Or go to school? How does the idea of you being a child of God affect your day-to-day life? I want you to keep these questions in mind as we look at John 1, 9-13 today. And as we look at this amazing passage, what we're going to see is that God has brought us into His family, and we are true children of God. And because of this... Because we're true children, we can live in freedom and victory instead of slavery. That's what I want you to get out of this. Now, for context, you know, we we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but Jesus is the eternal Logos, the eternal Word, who is both the creator and sustainer of all. He's the life and the light of humanity. In other words, without Jesus, no one would have true life and all would be in darkness. John the Baptist came as the last Old Testament prophet who shined a light, as it were, on the true light. And he told everybody that Jesus came so we might believe and find life and light. But what does this have to do with us? How does this help us in our broken world? How does this light become available to us to help us trudge through the darkness of this upcoming week? The answer is the light itself. The answer is Jesus. He is one of a kind. He ran an utterly unique and ama- he has an utterly and unique and amazing relationship with the Father. In fact, his relationship is so unique 
No one else can have this kind of a relationship with God on their own. Jesus, the unique one, the eternal Son of God, He is the one filled with grace and faithfulness. He is the one who heaps grace upon us, grace upon grace. He makes the Father known to us. And so this leads us to our consideration today. If we trust in Him, what happens to us? What kind of relationship can we, can you have with God today? How do we enter this relationship and what are the benefits we get from it? This is the word of the Lord, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The grass, it withers. The flowers, they fade. But the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen? So just to get, it, get you an idea about where we're going today with this sermon, you know, if you look at this, you see this kind of an outline, and you're like, that's not really an outline. It's just, you know, five things or, or, or four things. What I'm actually going to do is I'm just going to walk through this passage. I'm just going to walk you through it, expand on it a little bit, and then I'm going to take the, the, what we've heard, and we're going to spend a considerable amount of time in application. What does it mean for our day-to-day lives? So let's get, dig into the passage. The first thing you see is that Jesus is the true light. In other words, he is the light that is what it should be. He's the authentic light. You know, the light in here is not really authentic light. It's manufactured light. The light outside is true light. It comes from the sun. The source is the sun. This light is not authentic per se, but that light is. And Jesus Christ is, the scripture says, the authentic, the true light. Isaiah 60 that we read said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Anybody have an idea who that's talking about? Jesus, the true light, the authentic light. The darkness is spiritual bondage, being trapped in your own self, being being consumed by the flesh, the world, and the devil. And Jesus Christ, the true light of the world, comes to shine in the darkness and to give us brightness. You see, the world is a dark place. Its darkness is thick. Have you ever woke up in the middle of a night and the power was out? And you went to, maybe before phones, think back, and you went to grab a flashlight, and you grabbed it, and it didn't work, and it's dark. And then you go to find another place, and as you're walking, you stub your toe, or you hit your foot, and you, ah, right? And you get all upset and angry, 
and it's so dark and you don't have any cover. And the only comfort you have is when the lightning strikes and lights up a little bit so you can see. Those, that feeling that you get, that when you're stumbling around in the darkness is the feeling of helplessness. It's the feeling of fear. We need light to function. We need light to move. We need light to even continue life. Without light, we could know nothing. Without light, we could do nothing. But when the light is turned back on, the world is right again for us. And this is what Jesus does. It continues and says, Jesus enlightens every man. What does that mean? Remember verses 4 and 5 that Jesus was said to be the light of humanity? The opposite of light is darkness. Yes, good job. And so the reality is, is that this same thing, right, when we think about the physical world, um, that life is impossible without, dark, without light, what it leads to is darkness and death. The same is true in the spiritual world. Jesus is the light that makes life or, and salvation, or life or salvation, life and salvation, possible in the spiritual world. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. No one has any ability to trust and turn to God on their own. And Jesus Christ is the one who says, who enlightens every man. This is a metaphor, and it symbolizes the source of revelation or truth. Jesus is the life giver. Jesus is the light bearer. In bearing light, Jesus gives humanity this true knowledge of God. The true knowledge is actually the presence of God. Isaiah 9.2 says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So what's the bottom line? Jesus, the word of God, genuinely, truly, authentically discloses the true God to humanity. He is the only one that can do that. This is why Jesus says, in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the great light. Does that sound familiar to what we've just read? You know, interestingly enough, as you look at the book of John, the theme there brought out in chapter 1, then you begin to see throughout, even in John chapter 3, where Jesus Christ speaks with Nicodemus and talks about how the Spirit opens, opens the hearts of people so that they might believe, and how you have to have the new birth. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who gives light to men. But it continues. It says that Jesus came into the world. And so you have to ask the question, if this is the eternal God, the Son of God, who always was and always is, how did he come through? And the answer is through the Incarnation. The answer is that he took upon flesh. The Word of God, who was with God and was God, who always was, who made all things, who was the life and the light of men, came down and took on flesh. He was not created. He simply added humanity to his nature. Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct natures both God and man. He came into the created order, the world that he had made. He, the perfect one, came into a broken and rebellious world. This, brothers and sisters, is mind-blowing. 
Because it says, it goes on, that Jesus was in the world and the world came into being through him. The word of God, the life and light of humanity was in the world? What does that mean? God the Son came down to earth and entered the very thing that he created and upholds. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ upholds the world by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the one who holds everything together. The one who held everything together came down to the very thing he was holding together. That is beyond humanity's mind to grasp. And he did this as the creator of the world who made it and sustains it, but loved you so much, loved me so much that he decided to come into your neighborhood. That's the idea that you find in the text, that Jesus took up residence. He basically came from heaven, left heaven, and came down into humanity's neighborhood. That is beyond our ability to comprehend that God would come down in flesh so that you, well, he didn't have a home, but if he did have a home, you could knock on his door, right? Instead, you had to follow him around because he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, right? And he didn't have a place to lay his head, but you could find him. It was a person. And so Jesus made the world. The world came in about into being through him, and it says the world did not recognize or know Jesus. Okay, <laughs> as I was meditating on this, think this through. The one who upholds the world, the one who is the true life, the one who holds your life together, the one who is the true light, he comes down. The God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, comes down, and the world's like, ah, who's that? Can you imagine, what would you do if you were the maker of all and your creation that you made and are upholding by the word of your power at that very moment was like, I, he has a demon. Or, I don't know who this guy is. He doesn't mean anything. What would you do? Jesus did not annihilate that person. Which is probably what we would do. You ungrateful person, you. I made you, I hold your breath, and here I am standing in front of you, and you don't acknowledge me and give me praise and glory? What would, what would, what would, what would you do? See, this, the world made by this creator and sustainer that didn't give him the proper glory and honor, especially they didn't give him the absolute love, obedience, and worship that he deserved. But it gets worse. It says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So now you've got the people that he created, the Israelites, who were his chosen people, called by his name, who were called holy priests before him, and he comes to them. Now, he, granted, okay, so the Romans, the people who are apart from God's community, okay, they don't, see, don't get them, okay, we can give them a pass, right? We give them a free pass, like we're like, okay, that's fine. They're, they don't have all the revelation, they don't have all the scriptures. But then he comes to his own people, and his own people don't receive him. He came to his own place, his own domain, his own people. And Jesus basically came on his home turf, which should be owned and controlled by him, and the people should recognize it. And he came to them 
his treasured possession. His treasured possession. But the treasured possession rejected him as Savior, rejected him as their king, rejected him as their God, even though he proved himself through signs and wonders. It gets even more crazy than that. He raises a dead young man. He gives sight to the blind. He feeds 5,000 people, and his own people do not receive him. John 12.37 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This appears to be what John has in mind here. So not only did the entire world not recognize its creator, but God's special people rejected him. I mean, it would be like Jesus showed up in the flesh, in this building, and we were like, who are you? Like, I don't know you. You, you know... Um, if you're going to come in and you know, clean up Nashua and make it a great place, then uh, we'll follow you. But if you're not going to do what we want, mm, yeah, see ya. Do you understand? That, that's what it was like. The maker coming down in their midst. And it says, as many as received Jesus to the ones believing in his name. This verse, just so you know, is the keystone of the gospel of John. It tells us how we can get the benefits that Christ came to win for us. And how is that? As many as receive him, the ones believing in his name, it is these who will receive his benefits. This same idea is found at the beginning of the book, is also found towards the end of the book in John 20, 31. The purpose statement of the book, John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, Jesus is the life and the light of the world. In Jesus, life is found. Receiving Jesus, the light of the world and the life of humanity, is what believing is about. And believing in his name is really about receiving him. These things are essentially the same. When you think about believing and receiving, believing is the reality that you understand it. Receiving is taking that and owning it. Owning it. And as there are younger people in this building right now who are listening, believing is not enough. James says the devils believe and they tremble. You must also receive. If you just believe without receiving, then you actually technically haven't believed. You just have an assent to something. And so the reality is, is, is that you must not only believe that what Jesus did is true, what he did is right, but you must receive it into yourself and live in that. So let's talk about briefly what does it mean to actually receive him and how, how does one do it? Let's say you're out there and you're like, I'm not sure whether I've ever received Jesus. How do I do it? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what we're going to talk about. So the first thing is we are to receive or accept the reality that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did. In other words, the first part of doing this receiving is actually accepting all that Jesus said and did and taught. That's the first piece. But that's not all. 
You see, you have to recognize Jesus as the eternal God and creator, as the source of your life and the continuation of your life. In other words, all that Scripture says of Him. Listen, you must believe that God's Word is inerrant, infallible. You must believe that every word that God says is true. And here's why I say that. Because Jesus believed it. If you read the Scripture... In the Scripture, Jesus said that the Scriptures testified of Him. He upheld the law and the prophets and the writings, all of them. He upheld the entire Old Testament. And if you say that you trust and believe in Jesus, but don't believe in the Scriptures, you actually are disbelieving the very message that Jesus Christ Himself taught. And so you cannot say that you are united with Christ if you ignore the Scriptures and the revelation of God with Him. Even so, as you continue in the New Testament and you look at the writers, Peter talks of Paul's writing as being Scripture. Peter says the writings of Paul are, are, are from the Holy Spirit. So the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are God's inerrant, infallible word. And if you don't receive them, if you don't accept them, if you don't trust all that it says of him, then how are you to know Jesus at all? How is Jesus revealed? Through a dream, through a vision? How would you know you got the right Jesus? How would you know you're going the right way to God? But Jesus said, I'm the way, truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is basically saying, if you don't come the way that I say, you can't come. And so, this is part of understanding. Believing everything, receiving everything that Jesus said that the Scriptures say of Himself. Second, you have to trust Him and accept His claims that He alone can provide life. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, then you are outside of Christ. He is the only way. So, third though... He alone has the ability to rescue you and make you a child of God. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ alone is the only hero, the real hero who rescues you, you don't know him. He alone can empower you to receive and believe in him so that we all get his benefits. Essentially, we must receive him and believe in his name to receive his benefits. So you say, well, what does it mean to believe in his name? It's really, it's to trust him to trust his character, to accept his life as God and the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. I want to illustrate something for you. So, I think I can do it here. Okay. This is a chair. It's the most amazing chair ever. If you sit in this chair, it will hold you up. It will secure you. You have no reason to doubt this chair. You can sit in it and be absolutely sure. So I'd like you to come up here and sit in this chair. I'm not asking you to come up. I'd like you to come, right? Now, so you look at me and you're like, okay. And I'm, and I kind of, I kind of do this. And you're like, what? Is there something wrong with the chair? Because, so you'll say to me, hey, I'd like, an, I'd like to see an example. Will you sit in the chair? And you're like, well, I'm like, oh, no, it's fine. It's great. Just sit in it. It's good. The reality of belief in, tr- in Christ, receiving Christ and trusting in him, is that Jesus Christ 
is the chair in a sense. He is the one that you trust. The chair, sitting in the chair. I'm trusting, aren't I? I went from a mental ascent to how wonderful the chair was. I don't know if you've ever sat on a chair and have it fall from under you. Have you? I have. It's pretty scary, isn't it? So why don't you ever not sit in a chair again? Right? At some point. But I can talk about, I can talk a big game about trusting in the chair. But until I sit in the chair, what is it? Is it belief? Have I received it? See, faith, receiving and believing, is not only believing that the chair will hold you up, but sitting in the chair. And if you won't sit in the chair, you don't believe in the chair. You haven't received the chair. And the reality is, your faith in the chair has nothing to do whether this chair will hold you up. Do you understand that? Does my faith in this chair have anything to do whether this chair is actually able to hold me up? No. Your faith is simply what you do to receive and rest upon that. Jesus is who saves you. Jesus is the, the, the in essence, who you put your trust in and your faith in. It is he who saves you, not your faith. So if your faith is this tiny, it's okay. It's okay. Because you're not saved by your faith. Faith, Ephesians 2 says, verse 8, is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man will boast. Because if I tell you that it's about me and my ability to believe in the chair that holds me up, I have held myself up as greater than the chair. And it's the same way with Jesus. If you don't trust in Jesus completely and receive him completely and rest upon him alone for your salvation, you are not resting on him at all. You're resting on yourself. And so, like sitting in a chair, it is not about your action. It is sitting in all that Jesus has done for you. So, here's my question for you today. Are you sitting? Are you resting in what Jesus has done for you? Or are you all about your faith? Whether you have it, whether you don't, whether it's big, whether it's small, if you have, you actually have believed another gospel, and that is no gospel at all. Satanic, demonic. Faith is in Christ alone and nothing else. Amen? Jesus then says he gave them the right to become children of God. This is mind-blowing. There are two words found in the middle of verse 12. The first is, it's in the Greek, sorry. In the English, he gave, right, the three. But in the Greek, there's only two words because the verbs are, the, the he and, and, and them, they're all tied together. So he gave them authority and power. He, think about this. Jesus gave you the ability to receive him. He gave you the authority to become a child. It is not our doing. It is the special gift of God through Jesus Christ. Even more than this, the authority. In the Greek, this word has the idea of authority or power or right. And you can say that Jesus gives you the power to become children of God. Does this sound a little bit about like, like John chapter 3 with Nicodemus? 
What do you say to Nicodemus? You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless what? Unless you are born again. Jesus gives you the right to become a child of God. There is nothing in us that makes us worthy or even able to become a child of God, even if we wanted to, which we didn't. The reality of us being children comes about by the gracious decree of God. It is not our claim that makes us children. It is not our ability that makes us children. It is not our background that makes us children. To have the ability or power to become children of God, we have to be given that power through Jesus. Jesus alone can grant you the ability to have faith. Jesus alone grants you the ability for you to be called a child of God. So what's the bottom line? The ability or power to become children of God is given by God himself. Now, it is God begetting us. It is God giving us life. When we were given this power, we then have the power to believe in his name. And this is how we experience the reality of being a child of God. We must believe in the name, and in so doing, we participate in the sonship of Christ. We are then adopted into God's family. We are sons and daughters of the Son. We are sons and daughters in the Son. So Jesus gives life to us, that, and, 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 and that marks the beginning of our life of being children. Jesus gives you the power to become a child. You then become a child, and your life is marked by being a child and living the childlike life out. So, in other words, we are begotten of God, and as we are, we now have been given the ability through faith to participate in the object of our faith, which is Christ. That belief was directed towards him. In other words, the power to become children of God is a participation in the divine being that belongs to him. It means that God is in you. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's something incredible in there. Paul says, the Corinthians were living in immorality, adultery, sexual sin. And Jesus tells them that they are not to enter into that because when they do, they join Jesus Christ with a prostitute. And as you read that, it's kind of shocking. Because what, Jesus, what, 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 what Paul is saying there is, is that when you become a child of God, Christ dwells in you. Christ, the hope of glory, dwells in you. Jesus Christ lives in you by the Spirit. The Spirit makes Jesus present in you, and Jesus lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus lives in you. And Jesus says where the Father is, that the Father is there as well. And so in John chapter 17, so the reality is you have the triune God living in you, and if you enter into sexual immorality, you are bringing Christ into that. That's how real your union with Christ is. That the motivation for keeping from sexual sin is Jesus in you, the hope of glory. Not, well, it's just bad to do. Because it is bad to do. There's lots of reasons it's bad to do. But the reality is, is you have Christ living in you. And so the question is, what are you joining to Christ by your actions? And this is that reality. That is the significance. Faith is not static. It is dynamic. It is to those believing in his name, meaning that it is ongoing. It is a life. The only way that I could think of this, it is a life of adhesion to Christ. You remember John 15? Abide in me, 
and my words in you, if you don't abide in me, you can't do anything. Jesus is saying to you, you can't do anything without me. It's a life of adhesion. Receiving Jesus, believing Him, is a life of adhesion where Jesus Christ is your life each and every single day. Where you abide in Him, where you rest in Him, where you listen to Him, where you have faith in Him, where you trust in Him every single day. That life of adhesion is a life of faith. You're committed to the personal work of Christ, the Son of God. And so we take on the divine sonship appropriate it to ourselves or take it on on for ourselves. And then Christ and his divine life more and more lives out as a principle and essence of your life. So if you're walking in Christ and abiding in him, you will look like Christ more yesterday, more today than you did yesterday. And if you are not following Christ and looking like him more and more, you're missing him. Because he's sanctifying you. Colossians chapter 3 says that you're being renewed into the image of Christ, of your creator. So the starting point of this adhesion is the definite step of accepting Jesus' revelation of himself and of God. You must make a definite and conscious act, though it's given as a gift of receiving and believing in Jesus. So here's the bottom line. This is a gospel call for any of you who do not trust in Jesus Christ. This, he says, he gives you the right to become children of God. All of this is yours. All you must do is receive and believe in him. And this is the day. Today is the day of salvation if you are apart from Christ. This is the day where you simply say, I received you, Jesus. I trust in what you say. I rely on every word you say. I believe every word that you have written in the scriptures, and I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Give me your spirit and let me walk as a child of God. That's it. That's it. That's the gospel. When you do, you enter the divine sonship, which is a participation in the sonship of Jesus Christ. You and I have to receive from his fullness by accepting the revelation of Christ. And as we do, we share in his sonship. So where do I get this? Look at verse 13. It says, The ones not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So God wants, Jesus wants to just shut you down here on any reliance on yourself. He says, um, not those who are born of blood. So it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who your mother is, who your father is. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. That doesn't get you in the kingdom. That doesn't save you. It doesn't matter, kids, it doesn't matter if your parents are Christians or not. It has nothing to do with that, right? You get the blessings of being here, but you have to, by faith, accept it on your own. You can't just grab your parents' coattails and let them drag you into heaven. It doesn't work that way. You've got to follow Jesus yourself. So, but he, then he goes on, he says, not the will of the flesh. So it's not what man wanted. Salvation doesn't come by what man wanted nor of the will of man. And so basically what he does here is he says that he shuts every way off. They are not God's children because they're Jews. They're not God's children through human bloodlines. They're born into God's family, not by any human action. You are not a child of God based upon anything you do. You alone are a child of God based upon your union with Christ and the fact that he gives you the authority, the right to become a child of God. 
So, but born of God, he says. So in other words, God is the one who gives spiritual birth to, to us that brings us into the family of God. We are children by right of divine birth. It's a begetting that God does of being born again. And that's what John 3, 3 says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, he, again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. No one is ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus Christ died upon the cross, bearing the eternal wrath of God for you. And all you have to do is trust in him. Receive him and believe him. And so, Jesus is clear. Anyone who is a part of God's family in his kingdom must have been born of God. Once they are born of God through Christ's work by the Spirit, they believe and are given eternal life, and this eternal life is completely dependent upon them being united to Jesus Christ. And so those who are in the Son of God are sons and daughters of God by virtue of their union with Christ. Okay, I'm going to apply this. But before I do... I want you to understand something. Do with a question. Do you know whether or not you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Because the sign of one being born again is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is in you. He changes you from the inside out. You no longer live after your own pleasures, your own lusts. You live for him. Not perfectly, but you live for him because he's completely changed you. If you don't know what that means, if you don't know whether you have the Spirit, if you don't know what it means and you don't have a, a, the inside of your being crying out, Abba, Father, that God is your Father, and you view God as an angry or unjust God, and you view God as somebody who is just distant and aloof, then you, don't, you probably don't have the Holy Spirit and you probably aren't truly a Christian. You become a Christian when you trust in Jesus Christ and His Spirit dwells in you. And Jesus says, by the way, in Luke chapter 11, he, as He's talking about the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says to His people, he, when he talks about prayer, he, he says how the importance of God answering prayer and God won't, will give you good things, not bad things. And do you know what he says? He says, if your fathers who are evil give you good things, what will your heavenly father do? And he says, won't he give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? Do you know what I think that that really is saying? If you trust in Jesus and ask him for the Holy Spirit, he will not deny that. Why? Because it is will, it is his will that no one should perish, but everyone should have everlasting life. That's his will. God answers prayers according to his will. So if you ask God to save you and you ask him for his Holy Spirit, guess what? You can be confident that you have his Holy Spirit. Now, you may not like be able to feel it. Like you feel it a little bit maybe like, wow, I like to read the Bible and I can actually understand it and wow, I you know actually care about what God says, and I want to do what he says. That's some ways you can feel it, but the reality is, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get some rush into your being, right? Like, I feel like a different person. I mean, you do, but it doesn't necessarily always feel the same for everybody else, because you cannot, you're not saved based on your feelings, right? You're saved based on who? Jesus and his person and his work. So, 
if you don't know what the Holy Spirit is, and if you don't have the Father, the, the Spirit crying, Abba, Father, so that you know that God is a loving and benevolent and kind Father to you, you probably just don't know Jesus. And it's time to say, I believe, I receive, I accept, and I'm going to walk in you. So what is it, the, what is the practical values of this uh, of, of us becoming and being given the right and authority of the children of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blast through these. And if you want, I can send this out to you. If you'd like, I can send it out to worship at nationalpca.org if you want. If, you're not on that, no, if you don't know if you're on that mailing list, you can ask me. I'll put you on, on there. But he gives us this, these rights. First, you have a right to an extravagant inheritance. Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's the, here's the idea, and it's that, G, that we are children of God, we are Christ's brothers and sisters, and we receive the same inheritance as Christ. Mind-blowing. God said that you get to receive the inheritance that Christ received. That's yours! You're a child. You're not some, you know, like, friend of the family. You're a child of God. In Jesus Christ, you are a son and daughter of God, a real one. And real sons and daughters get the inheritance. And you get the inheritance of Jesus Christ. The next thing you get on this earth is you get fatherly favor during any and all difficulties. You know what that means? Is, is that it means that everything, you can know that everything that happens is for your good. Your father is not being mean to you when bad things happen in your life. Your father is doing what is best for you. You get that. I'll tell you what, that takes away a lot of anxiety, takes away a lot of depression when you know that the misery in your life is God's particular hand drawing you in to a deeper communion with him. Next, you get the presence of God who's in you. What? I mean, that's enough, okay? That, that one thing is enough. God himself living in you? What else do you want? You get, after you die, you get the riches of his glorious grace. You get communion with God and everyone else who's in heaven. You get to enjoy the magnificence of the new heavens and a new earth and a new body, a spiritual body. And you get to dwell in an eternal dwelling place with God where God is with men. These things allow a child of God to realize who he or she really has been, what he or she has been given and who they really are. And it should warm your heart. It should change the way you think about this troubled earth. So, there's also, you, you, ever, you guys know about immunities, right? You know what immunities are. Um, when you have, it, it, you're trying not to use, like I always use words that are bigger to define a word I'm doing, which doesn't help. Um, but, but immunities are things that will keep you from having pain or suffering out there. Like you take a shot and you don't get mumps or measles or all those different, different things, and that's an immunity. So you get immunities in adoption. You get freedom from slavish obedience. Guess what? You don't have to obey God like he's some angry, you know, master. You get to obey him as a loving father. You get freedom from the bondage of religious leaders. Listen, I don't have any right or authority to tell you what to do. Only God does. I am a spokesman, a spokesperson of God. And what I say, if it aligns with the Bible, you, that is the only thing that you have to submit to, is the word of God. So you don't have to worry about me, 
Try and do what all the things that I have to say. I say, well, you should do this, and you should do that, and you should do... I might give you advice, but you don't have to follow that advice unless it's scriptural, unless it comes from God. You get freedom from religious leaders. You get freedom from the bondage to religious rights. Like, you don't have to do all these different rights and different things to, to know Jesus and to have his salvation. You get freedom from the bondage of, of the moral law as a standard of justification. You don't have to obey the law in order to be saved. Jesus did it for you. You obey the law because you're a child and you like God. And those are parts of his character. And so you do the things that God has in his character, right? Like God, that's why you do it, not because you're trying to earn something. And so you get the privileges from adoption of a free and joyful spirit of obedience Boldness to approach God, liberty to commune with Him as a child, liberty to offer sincere and imperfect obedience through the accepted work of Christ, and discipline that is both dis- that is both instructive and corrective. You get all those things and more. I didn't have time to enumerate everything, but that's what you get in Jesus Christ by becoming a child of God. And if you don't know what those things are and haven't experienced those things, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to tell you about all that Jesus has to give you and to offer you. He's doing it for his glory, of course, but he's doing it for your good. I want you to feel and to experience what Spurgeon said of one who is a child of God. They rush into the presence of their father, leap into his lap, and nestle in his bosom. That is what you have in and through Jesus Christ. Just like John laid his down on the bosom of Jesus at the the Last Supper. Guess what? You get that with the Father. Heavenly Father, there's not enough time to explain the many benefits of what you've done for us. And so we just bow our hearts, our heads, our minds, our lives before you and say, thank you, Father, for giving us your Son, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for sending your, for coming down to this earth and taking on the wrath of God for our sake. Thank you so much, Spirit, for dwelling in us and making us your, yourself present in us. We delight in you and praise you and ask that you would be with us, leading us and guiding us, helping us to understand the reality of our redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, make everyone here truly understand who they are, whose they are in Christ. Amen.